We'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me do this. I'm going to go very quickly. And then as we get to the end of the study, we'll take time. If we get through it today, fine. If we don't, we'll do it next week. We're going to take the time to go back through the end times again to make sure you've got it all. But if you remember, first of all, Old Testament's prophecy about the coming of Messiah. Jesus Christ came to the earth, was born in Bethlehem. About age 30 began his ministry. He died on the cross to pay for sin and rose again. Uh, after about a three, three and a half year ministry, he walked on the earth for 40 days and ascended into heaven. Holy Spirit came down 10 days later and started what we call the church. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And we're in the church now. The very next event will be the rapture in which Jesus Christ comes in the clouds. The church will be taken off the face of the earth. We will stand before our Savior Jesus. That's what is called the judgment seat of Christ to be rewarded for the things we've done in this body, whether good or worthless. And that's that part. And then after we're gone, there'll be a time on the earth that lasts for seven years. It's called the seven-year tribulation. It is a time in which a peace pact is made with the man of sin, the Antichrist, with the nation of Israel. Many, many Jewish people, first of all, will begin by trusting in Jesus Christ, 144,000, and then the message will spread throughout the whole world. Many, many people will trust Christ. The nation of Israel as a whole will believe in Jesus as Savior. At the end of this seven-year time period, Jesus Christ will come back to the earth. We will come with him. He will come as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Satan is cast into the lake of fire. I mean, excuse me, Satan is cast into a big abyss. Then Jesus will rule on the earth with us and with the Old Testament saints and with the tribulation saints for a thousand years. It's called the millennial kingdom. He will rule in righteousness and justice, as Psalm 2 says. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is released for a short time. There'll be a final rebellion and a battle called the second battle of Gog and Magog. And then there'll be a, a judgment time, uh, which we call it the great white throne judgment. And following that, and I don't know why the great white throne judgment not on this slide. It usually is. But anyway, after the great white throne judgment, we go into the eternal state in which there's a new heavens and a new earth and the holy city Jerusalem and all that. So that's the flow of end times. We've talked about that over these a long time now because many of our lessons, we this is our 10th lesson, but they're all not a week. We go sometimes two to three weeks on a lesson. So we've been seeing this a long time. Toward the end, if we have if you have questions or comments, we'll be able to do that. But let's, let's think about our study. We have seen the flow of end time events. We've seen the various views of the kingdom. We've seen the various views of the tribulation. We've talked about Christ's first coming. We've talked about his second coming. We've talked about the rapture. We went back to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, and we talked about the tribulation there. We've talked about the eternal state, the new heavens, the new earth, the great white throne judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. We've seen the charge to be faithful. So over these weeks, we've seen a bunch of things. In this final lesson, we want to see one more exhortation. It's going to be found in 1 Thessalonians. We want to understand the truth. We want to understand that as Ezra was to know the Bible, apply the Bible, and teach the Bible, we're to do the same thing. We're to know the Word of God, apply the Word of God, and teach the Word of God. And so that's the key. We're to know. Let's think about this. We're to know the end time events. We're to apply them because it helps us to be comforted, and we're to teach those to others so they can understand them as well. So that's what we've been doing. One of my heroes from the Bible is Paul, the apostle. It just so happens today, in Sunday morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, this is where Paul, the apostle, believes in Jesus. In fact, he's Saul, the persecutor, 
and he trusts in Jesus Christ as his Savior in Acts chapter 9 this morning. We'll see that. But he is, he is a great one. We call him the Apostle. He wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. He went on three missionary journeys. He established churches all over the place. And, and we want to look at one group that he went to, the city of Thessalonica. And so you're in First Thessalonians. And, of course, this is a letter that he wrote to a church there. Paul went to this church, uh, Paul went there on his second missionary journey, formed a church, led people to Christ, established the church, but the best that we can tell, he may have been there only three to four to five weeks. So think about it. He goes into a community, leads people to Christ, puts them together, and teaches and is there for only about a month, a month and a half. Now, if you were Paul, and you had this group of believers and you, they just started, and you just formed this church, and you're about to leave, what would be the truths that you would teach them? Well, one of the areas that he helped them to understand, uh, yeah, I, I, think we've, I think we went through that, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You, I think we're next slides after that. Yeah, one of the things that he helped them to understand is the end-time events. Now, you may think it's strange that brand-new Christians people that he leads to Christ, first time they've really understood it, they've trusted in Christ as Savior, one of the first things that he taught them was the end times, how things flow together, what we would call the end time events. A lot of people say that people don't need to know the end time events. A lot of people say their end time events are too hard for people to understand. But isn't it amazing that the very first thing that Paul taught these believers were the end times? I think it's true that if you understand that Jesus Christ could come when? at any second, then we need to know the end times. We need to know how fast it's going to, what could happen. We need to know what's going to happen next. We need to know about first coming and the second coming and the tribulation and the kingdom and the eternal state. We need to understand about the rapture. We need to understand about the judgment seat of Christ. We need to understand all those things. So Paul taught those people this. In fact, you don't have to do this, but if you read 1 Thessalonians, every chapter of 1 Thessalonians ends with the return of Jesus Christ. Every chapter ends with him talking about Christ coming back, the five chapters. Then when you read 2 Thessalonians, he really spends a lot of time talking about the Messiah and the Savior and the, even the tribulation. And so this letter deals with the coming, this letter deals with the coming of Jesus Christ. So it makes sense. Now, let's remember these truths, okay? The first time Jesus Christ came, he came to die. He is the Lamb of God. The second time he comes to the earth, he comes to rule as the Lion of Judah. When he comes in the clouds, that's what we call the rapture. So think about it. First time to die, Lamb of God. Second time to rule, Lion of Judah. In the clouds, he's coming to take us out. In this letter, he's focusing on the coming in the clouds. And we're going to see how it fits together. If you've got your hand out, we're going to see in, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul seeks to encourage these believers. I want you to notice, look at verse 6 of chapter 1. We're not going to go with all the verses. I just want you to see a few selected things to encourage you. Here's what he says about the Thessalonians. He said, you also, verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. Would you feel comfortable going to other people and telling them they need to act like you? <laughs> you need to imitate me. You need to be like me. Uh, Paul actually says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
So Paul says here, you became imitators of us, Paul and the people that travel with him. He said, you were like us and to the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with with the joy of the Holy Spirit. How did they receive the word? With joy. But what was going on? Tribulation. See, we think sometimes that if things are going wrong, then something must be wrong. He says they actually received the message of Jesus Christ with joy in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of trials, in the midst of problems. And that was what was going on. Look what he says in verse 7. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That's northern Greece and southern Greece. For the word of the Lord has sounded from you not only in Macedonia, northern Greece, and Achaia, southern Greece, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we need, don't need to say anything. Now let me ask you something. Wouldn't it be amazing if in this community your faith your stand for Christ, your beliefs in the truth of the Bible, your grace message of salvation, your holding and living out the truths of the Bible went forth so that the word of the Lord has come out that you're an example to all believers in this area and the word of, 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 of truth has gone out. See, if, if a small group of believers in Thessalonica in, in a pagan world could spread the message of Jesus Christ in that whole region. Why can't we spread the message of Christ in this community? Now, if you say everybody's already got it, they don't have the message. There are a lot of people who talk about God, and there are a lot of people who talk about Christ. But when you get down to it and say, what do you think a person has to do to go to heaven? What do people say? Well, do the best you can, or try to live a good life, or go to church, or, or, or all kind of different things. The true grace message of salvation is unknown as a whole. We have that message. We must take that message in this community. Now, look what he says, because there's, there's three things. Uh, you, don't turn to that yet. There are three things that I want you to see in verses 9 and 10 that they did, and we're going to make application. Look what he says in verse 9. For they themselves report. He says, all these people tell us about what kind of reception we had with you, how it all worked, and how you, here's the first thing, how you turned to God from idols. Here's A. These, these people turned to God from idols. Now remember, when he came to Thessalonica, these people worshipped idols. Did you know in that part of the world that there were as many as a thousand different gods? And that in every city there were different gods? And in every home, most every home had their own home god that they would make a little statue and put it, and they used that god to say, I'm going to protect my family. And there were gods everywhere. It says that when we came into the Thessalonians, it says, you turned to God from idols. They had worshipped idols, but when they heard the message of Jesus Christ, they trusted Christ. Look at the application. The truth is for us, that we heard the message of Jesus. We turned from trusting self. And you know, people say, well, we don't worship idols. I think we do. But, but think about yourself. What if you said like I did, I think I'm going to heaven. Why? Because I've tried to do what? More good than bad. That's if you'd have talked to me when I was 19 years old, who was I depending on to get to heaven? Me. So who was I really worshiping? Me. I'm saying, I can do this. I'm, I'm going to live a good life, and I'm going to do more good than bad. And when I stand before God, he'll say, good job. You did more good than bad. You get to go. And there are all kind of things we put our trust in. 
And so in the same way that he said, you turned to God from idols, our application for us, and I hope and pray that every one of us in this room, we would say, yes, we turn from trusting anything else other than Jesus Christ. And see, that is one of the keys. See, salvation is, is faith alone in Christ. Jesus is the Savior. We put our trust in Christ. Uh, it, people say, uh, how are you saved? By faith. By faith in what? I've had people say, all you have to do is believe. And I say, believe what? And they don't have an answer. Have you ever talked to somebody and you say, what do you think you have to do to go to heaven? And they say, believe. And you say, believe what? And they go, well, believe. Believe what? There's an object of our faith. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. He's the one who died and rose again. We're trusting in Christ for eternal life. So it says, they turned to God from idols. The prayer for us, and the, the great thing is that all of us in this room, Lord willing, we have turned from ourselves and trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ. Look at the second thing it says. They turned from God, uh, to, to God from idols to serve a living and true God. B. They serve the living and true God. That's what they did. That's why their testimony went out because they didn't just believe in Jesus Christ and say, now I have eternal life. They said, I believe in Jesus Christ and I'm going to live for him. Look at our application. We also are to serve God. See, there's a big step and a big difference and we're, we've talked about this as a church many, many times and that is this, that there are many people who believe in Christ as their Savior and they're saved and they're saved forever but they don't live for Christ. They don't serve him. They don't have an impact. It is, it, does salvation cost you anything? It's a gift, isn't it? By grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. You can't boast. You, you say, I, I got the gift of eternal life. But what about service? Does it cost you? It costs you what, Susie? It costs you your life. And it says, these people, not only did they turn to God from idols, but they were to serve a living and true God. What we need to do is serve God. Not only that you believe in Him as your Savior, but you're deciding to live for Him. That is the, that is the step that will change you. Now, we all say, okay, I trusted in Christ as Savior, and I'm born again. I was dead. Now I'm alive. I was in darkness. Now I'm alive. I'm changed. I'm a new creation in Christ. That's true. But that doesn't necessarily change your lifestyle. What changes your life and your lifestyle is when you say, from this moment on, I want my life to count for you. I want to serve the living God. When I wake up in the day, every morning, I want to say, Lord, my life is for you. So look at what they did. They turned from, to turn to God from idols, so they stopped trusting the wrong stuff and trusted in Jesus. Then they decided they were going to serve God. That's why they've had such a big impact. And then look at the third thing that they did. And to wait, this is verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven. The third thing is they were waiting, or they waited for Jesus to come. See, our application, we're to live our lives looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. See, that's what they did. They, they, they turned away from idols and trusted Christ. They decided they're going to live for Christ, and they're anxiously awaiting the return of Christ. How do we live our lives if we believe that Jesus could come any second? How do you live your life if you think he could come today? First John, say that, Ian. Like Christ, First John says that when we think he's coming, we're going to live a pure life. 
If we actually believed he could come today, do you want to be in sin when he comes? You say, no, 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 I want to be doing good when he comes, right? Well, if you think he could come at any second, what should we be doing? Be doing good. Be living our lives for the glory of God. And so our application would be we're to live our lives looking for Jesus Christ to come. So there's some great things there. Notice what the verse goes on to say. To wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That's Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, can you put the slide up of the end times again? Who's he writing to? Who's he writing to? Believers in what age? Church age, see? He's writing to these people. He says, who raised Christ from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. What wrath? The tribulation. See, he actually told them, listen, you, you, you've, you've turned from works and all that, and you've believed in Jesus, and you've served him, and you're looking forward to his coming. This is the Jesus who died and rose again, and who's going to deliver us from the coming wrath. See, there are people who say the Bible doesn't say anything about us not going through the tribulation. It does. It says it all over the place. We're the body of Christ, and we're not going through the tribulation. These believers were waiting for Christ, and they knew that he could come at any second. Now, continue on. Look, look in your in 1 Thessalonians, turn over to chapter 4. And, and sometime, look at the end of chapter 1. That's what he says. We're waiting for Jesus to come, who's going to deliver us. In chapter 2, he says, who is our hope at the coming of Jesus? In chapter 3, he says, establish our hearts with the coming of Jesus. Chapter 4, it's a famous passage about the coming of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And this is the one where he says, Christ is going to come and he's going to raise those who have already died first and then we who are alive and remain. Look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord won't precede those who have already fallen asleep. Here's what's going to happen. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. And guess what? Dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain to be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air, not on the earth, in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. Do you remember this? We've already talked about this. This is the rapture. Let me ask you a question. Based on what we know from the scripture, if Jesus Christ came right now, what would happen? What would happen? Okay, there'll be a shout, the trumpet, and what's going to happen? Okay, what does that mean, the dead in Christ will rise first? What does that mean? Huh? Believers have already died. Where are they? No, don't. Believers who have died are not buried. Believers who have died, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Where are their bodies? Their bodies are buried, but they are with the Lord. So when he comes in the clouds to get us, it says there'll be a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ rise first. What's he talking about? They'll be, their bodies will be raised. You understand that people who have trusted in Christ, who have died, they are with the Lord now, but their bodies are somewhere in the grave, somewhere. And when Jesus comes in the clouds, their bodies will be raised. And then what happens to us? In the moment, a twinkle of an eye will be taken off the face of the earth. Do you believe that? Do, you believe, do we live like that? No, we say, I don't know what's going to happen. Yes, we do know what's going to happen, right? 
You know, if you believe the Bible, you know that our loved ones are with the Lord. If Jesus came this moment, the, the ones who know Christ are coming with him, and there'll be a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. Their bodies will be raised just like that, and then in the twinkle of an eye, we'll be caught up together with them to meet the Lord where? In the air, and thus we'll always be with the Lord. This is what he told the Thessalonians. See, they were worried. Word had got back to Paul that what about Aunt Martha who died? Because people are talking about Jesus coming back. And they said, Aunt Martha died. She's going to miss the whole thing. And Paul said, no, no, no. Don't, I don't want you to worry about that. I don't want you to, about those who've already asleep. Don't worry about it because the Lord's going to come and their bodies are going to be raised and then you're going to be changed and we're all going to be together. If you have in your family someone that you have loved, that trusted Christ and they've passed away and wherever their bodies are one of these days when Jesus comes if you're if we're still alive when he comes it could be any second they're gonna be raised just like that and given glorified bodies and you're gonna be changed it says we are alive and remain to be caught up together to meet them in to meet the Lord in the air we're gonna be changed first Thessalonians says that this old mortal body is gonna put on what immortality boom this old corruptible body, the ones that are corruptible, the ones that are in the grave that are already just coming to dust, what's going to happen to them? They're going to put on incorruption. It's going to be a change. This is what he told them. This is what he's telling us. This is why we should be excited. There's one. Yes, yes, Susie. Does the Bible say anything about glorified bodies? About glorified bodies? Well, th that's a great question. The be we've always called this resurrected body a glorified body and the best that we can tell what a glorified body is is a body that will never decay that will last forever because we have what kind of relationship with Jesus Christ eternal relationship so he makes the body that he raises to be an eternal body now let me just say this and this is what makes it a little bit hard is the fact that Jesus Christ has conquered death. That means every human being will be raised from the dead. Every human being, both believers and unbelievers, because in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus Christ has conquered death, so unbelievers will be raised from the dead to spend eternity where? Separated. And the Bible calls it the second death. We have life they have death. That's why he who has the Son has life. Who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So when people talk about people dying, if, you're not, if a person's not a believer, they don't cease to exist. They will be raised, given a body that will last forever, but they will spend forever dying, as he calls it, the second death separated from Jesus Christ. That's what death is. Death is separation. We won't be separated. Thus, we will always be with the Lord. And so for us, we'll spend eternity with him. First, the thousand years on this earth, and then the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. It'll be forever. Okay, any questions? Anything? I mean, this is amazing, right? Because this little book that most people say, well, it's just First Thessalonians. We don't know what it's about, really. Well, yeah, we do know exactly what it's about. It's more about the coming of Christ. Five times he mentions it at the end of every chapter. Now he also mentions it at the start of chapter 5. Look what he says. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Why? Because he already told them. 
He's actually saying to him, I don't really have to write this to you because we, when I was there, I told you. He says that in the letter. He says, for I already told you these things. And notice what he says. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now let me show you something. Can you put the, uh, the big slide back up again? Okay, the day of the Lord. People get confused about that because in the Old Testament, sometimes he talks about the day of the Lord, and it talks about a time of judgment. And the day of the Lord is not a happy time. But here's what we know, best we can tell from Paul's writing and John and the other places. The day of the Lord begins at the rapture. And Excuse me, right there. It begins at the rapture, and we're taken out, and the day of the Lord actually lasts this whole time period. It deals with the rapture and the second coming and the kingdom. He says, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just as a thief in the night. What does that mean? We don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, do, we know, do we know when the second coming is happening? Huh? We sort of do because we know it's going to at least be seven years after the peace pact is made, right? But do we know when the rapture is going to be? So the day of the Lord, which begins the, the, right here, is going to start with the rapture. And notice what he says. Because this, this day, you can go back to the slide. He says, I no need to tell you all about this, about the day of the Lord. It begins with the rapture, goes through the kingdom, it comes as a thief in the night. Look what he says in verse 9. This is what's so wonderful. For God has not destined us for what? but obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to ask you something. If you don't know the context of this passage, when he says, God is not destined us for wrath, but salvation, what might you think he's saying? God didn't want you to go to hell, but to give you what? Eternal life. What's the flow of this passage dealing with? Him coming back to get us. When he says, God is not destined us for wrath, what wrath is he talking about? But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, what salvation is he talking about? Taking us, he's not talking about eternal life salvation. Look, the, word, the Greek word sozo, which means I save, or soterion, which is the word for salvation, it's used in a lot of ways. If you fell down in a hole and somebody pulled you out and you say, oh, thanks for saving me, I don't know if I ever got out of that hole, that's the exact same word as saying Jesus Christ saved me. The word is the same word, and we use it in the same way. He said, man, I went to the store. I didn't have any money. The guy behind me said, here's $5. The guy saved me from having to go put all the stuff back up. So we know what, he meant, what we mean when we say he saved us. We say Jesus Christ saved me. He's given me eternal life. We also can say Jesus Christ will save us from what? The tribulation. And that's what he's talking about right here. For God is not destined us for wrath, but obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that salvation there is, I don't know, is there a, there's not a slide for that, is there? Or is there? Yeah, salvation. He's talking about a physical salvation. He's talking about a deliverance. That's why when you study the Bible, what is the thing you must always do? You must study it in its context. Yeah, because you can make it say anything. If I only gave you those verses without any reference and just said, what do you think this means? God doesn't want us to have wrath, but he wants to save us. We could say, oh, he's talking about God doesn't want us to go to hell and, 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 and experience the wrath of God. He wants us to have eternal life salvation. 
That makes sense, but that's not what this passage is about. Now look at look how it flows. And that's why you have to look at the context. For God is not, this is verse 9 again, God is not destined us for wrath, but obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, now watch, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Now our first thought is, He died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, alive or, uh, alive or what? What does it mean? Dead. So we first think that he died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we'll live together with him. Whether we're alive or dead, when he comes to get us, either we'll be dead or alive, right? But if you look at the flow of the passage, going back in verse 5, he says, You're sons of light. We're not to be in darkness. So do not let us sleep as others, but let us be alert. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we're of the day, let's be sober. In this whole passage, he's saying, Don't be a sleepy believer, which means you're not doing anything, but be an alert believer. So when he gets over here and says, For whether we awake or sleep, we're going to be with him. You know what he's saying? Whether you're serving him or not, guess what? When he comes, he's going to get you. Have you ever heard somebody say that if you weren't living right as a Christian, when Jesus comes, you don't get to go? Anybody ever heard that? This passage says just the opposite. It says whether you're dull or alert, you're going to get to be with him. Now, there's a whole bunch of dull Christians who are sleeping because we're just going through life and we're saying, yeah, he, he could come at any second, but it's been thousands of years, and who knows when he's going to come, and it doesn't really matter. And then one day I'm going to kind of get on the stick and do what God wants me to do, or maybe I never will. It doesn't, you know. And he says, you're going to be with him. Whether we are awake or asleep, we'll live together with him. That takes us to the last thing. Look what he says in verse 11. Therefore, when you see a therefore, that is summing it up and giving us an application. Here we go. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. As we await Jesus Christ and he could come at any second and we're all excited about that he could come at any second and he's saying whether you're on fire or not on fire, when he comes, you're going to get to be with him. Here's what you need to be doing. You need to encourage one another and build up one another. Encourage one another to do what? Do what? Serve. To serve, yeah. Uh, how is, uh, let's think about this. How would you encourage anyone here today? I mean, we gather together, right? In fact, in Hebrews he says, Seek not the forsaken assembly of yourselves as a man or some is, but come together so that you might encourage one another to love and good works. How do you encourage fellow believers uh, when you gather together? Be friendly and love them. Love them and encourage them and serve and use your gifts and talents. What happens if you're using your gifts and talents? What might they do? They might go, boy, everybody else, everybody around here is doing something. I better do something. Right? I mean, in our church, you've got to put up a chair. I mean, you've got to do something just to start with. If you're even a visitor, you've got to put up a chair. Right? We should encourage one another and build up one another. Second Peter says, I think we've got these verses. Second Peter says, grow in the grace 
and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Second Timothy 2 says, take what you've been taught, teach others. Hebrews 10.25 says, encourage one another to love and good works. While we're waiting for Jesus to come, and he could come at any second, we need to encourage one another. I was reading a book yesterday by this guy. It's called The Disciple-Making. It's, it's about disciple-making, and he calls it The Disciple-Making Pastor. But he talks about that most believers, and I'm, I'm not saying this is true about all of us, but he says most believers really think about themselves and that when they come to church, it's not to give, it's to get. Because our culture says things like, what do you have to offer to that church? Uh, I, I went to church, but I didn't get anything out of it. Uh, uh, you know, I, they, they, they don't have a good enough this. And in our culture today, believers look at church as a commodity. What do you have to offer me? And I'll decide whether I'll go to that or not. When in reality, why are we gathering together? Why did we come together this morning? What, to worship who? Jesus Christ. If you say, I didn't get anything out of it, obviously you didn't what? Put anything in it. Yeah, I mean, that's what it's all about. We're coming here to say, thank you, Lord, you have saved us, you've gifted us, you've put us in a local body. We're here to encourage one another, serve one another, <clears throat> build one another up, look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing. Uh, we, we want our lives to count for Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Listen, let's don't be like everybody else. Let's don't do it. I mean, we got you know, to start over. And we've been going a year. And this church is amazing. Think about what's happened in the last year. It's unbelievable. It's beyond, it's beyond what most people even, you know, I talk to people and they say, so your church just started, and we start talking about it, and they go, how, how is that even possible for what you do and what you have? And, you know, so we don't want to be like everybody else anymore. We don't want to just go through life. We want to, as believers, to make such an impact that it'll say in the same thing. It says, you've had a great impact. He said to those Thessalonians, he said, you've impacted the whole region. You've become an example. The word of the Lord has gone out from you. That's what we want to do. So when we come together on a Sunday morning, we have come together to do what? to worship our Savior, be trained and equipped to serve Him, to reach out to one another, to build one another up, to encourage one another as we wait for the return of Christ.